Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Good morning. This is Money FM 89.3 on Morning Shot this morning. Did you know that only 1.2% of our international waters are protected currently? Well, nearly 200 countries have recently reached a historic agreement to protect the world's oceans following a decade of negotiations. And come 2030, some 30% of the high seas are set to be turned into protected areas so that marine species can thrive better. Conservationists worldwide are welcoming this landmark move, especially since almost 10% of marine species globally are at risk of extinction. For a deep dive into how much this treaty can turn the tides, we're joined by Professor Rashid Sumaila, who is Director of the Fisheries Economics Research Unit at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. Welcome to the show, Professor. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really good to have you with us. Now, give us a sense first and set the context for us with a few words. How big a deal is this UN High Seas Treaty? You know, for me, any time, any time the world, nearly 200 countries come together to agree on something this big, I'm very excited and very happy about it. So because, you know, it's not easy, right? Each country has their interests and they manage to do this. So we can all be happy that that has happened. The agreement is about a very important part of the global system, the mm-hmm. high seas. It's actually one half of the surface of the earth, high seas alone. Mm. So this is huge. Until we manage that properly, we cannot say we are managing the world properly. So so that Mm. is a big point. This agreement puts us on the path towards achieving that. Yeah, we know so little of the high seas. So with this treaty, imagine that uh, we'll have to establish new protected areas. So what must be factored in? What, what kind of things are we considering here? The ocean, we have one global ocean. We put the line and say country water and international water. The fish don't know this, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the fish that we catch go in and out of the high seas into country waters. So if we don't manage the high seas well, we impact what happens in our country waters in a big way. In total, we take about 5 to 8% of the total catch from the high seas. Mm. So inside the high seas. But 7 to 8% of the revenue we get from fish are fish that go in and out. So, mm. so a good chunk of the high seas, we will be able to catch this fish cheaply. It's mainly tuna when they come into our waters, pump less carbon, and it's also good in terms of distribution because all countries can have a chance to catch this fish. So that is the kind of thing we are looking at now. Are there particular areas on the map that are more vulnerable? Oh, yeah, certainly there are. And scientists are mapping out these areas. And with this treaty, we are going to know more about this because many of us will focus on this. We have a paper which was just accepted in Nature Sustainability where we did a bit of that mapping. So, you know, the high seas contain species that are very sensitive. They grow grow very slowly. Mm. Some of them live up to 100 years, longer than people, right? Mm. So they, they... and they are the sensitive areas and we are mapping, scientists are mapping this to support policy so that we can place these marine protected areas strategically to protect this delicate part of the high and deep seas. 
Professor, one crucial part of the treaty covers the requirement for assessing the environmental impacts of deep sea mining, and that's uh, particularly concerning. Do we already have the necessary infrastructure and capabilities to study the real impacts of that on marine life? Unfortunately, the answer is no, really. The literature is very weak on the impact assessment of that part of the ocean. It's quite deep. We're not playing around here. Even on land, it's still quite complicated to do this impact assessment. So we are yet to develop the methods. That's why many scientists, including myself, who is an economist, is saying, look here, we need to pull back with all this deep sea mining to understand better before we cause a lot of harm. And so, yeah, no, we don't have the technology yet. It will come, but it's not here yet. Another vital area is the framework for marine genetic resources, which are currently used to develop extremely lucrative pharmaceuticals by corporations and countries, which can afford to access these deep and distant areas. How can we measure that? What constitutes exploitation by these companies or countries? Yeah, so this is a a very interesting area because, you know, these genetic resources, is a lot of chance, you know, to hit on them. The, the ocean is vast. The high seas is vast. So before they can actually identify, they have to do a lot of exploration and exploitation. And so we need to be careful before we hit that. And the thing that I, I think a lot about is, it's a lot about chance. The probabilities of actually getting this is low. But when we get it, the value is high. So we need to prospect them, but we need to do it carefully. So many of us uh, scientists believe that we don't fully understand life in the ocean. We don't understand about 90% of what is going there. Can you imagine that we know about the moon more than the ocean? (laughs) So again, even in this case, we need to really be careful how we move on this. Coming back to marine species, we've seen interesting reports of dolphins having to shout over underwater noise pollution and whale calves getting separated from their mothers because of the quiet vocalisations. Can you give us a sense of the extent of behavioural changes we're seeing in the marine life over the last decade and how much of that is directly correlated with human actions? Oh, there, there have been papers on this, on especially noise, even from shipping, not to talk about mining deep down there. And, and what happens is many of the cetaceans, the whales of the world, the dolphins, they have a very sensitive uh, frequency band, you know, where they pick up their noise. And when that is messed up, they actually lose their ability to sense things, to find direction. Scientists have told me they found whales that don't know where they are, what to do how to find food, take care of their kids because of noise. And deep sea mining is only going to increase this. And so many of our marine mammals in particular are going to be affected. The other thing with deep sea mining is you are going to go down to the sea floor, right? And that disturbs a lot of habitat for these animals. Again, really most of us are really very kind of concerned that we may rush this thing cause a lot of damage and it will be too late to fix it. So again, we need more understanding. So it's taken a long time for this to come to fruition. How about implementation? What are the real challenges of executing the treaty, especially out at sea? Yeah, great question, because this is just the beginning. Even though it took about 20 years to get this agreement, now countries have to ratify this, Mm -hmm. get it through their parliaments. We need 60 countries, at least, 
before it comes into force. So all citizens, journalists, social, civil society have to work hard on our governments to really get this number because that triggers the whole thing. Then when it is approved, now the implementation. We need information, we need data, we need to push our political system. So my dear people of the world, people of Asia, there is work to be done. We all have to get going. This is just the beginning. And uh, yeah, there is much to be done to get this actually implemented. Okay, Professor, one last question before we let you go. To what extent do you think the treaty will force change in terms of increasing transparency in our oceans? Yeah, you know, you know. actually, if, if you look at my research and also my colleagues, ultimately what we think will be the wisest thing to do for the world is to close the whole of the high seas to fishing, turn it into what I call a fish bank for the world, where the fish can go, have a rest. When they come in, we catch them cheaply, sustainably, and so on. But I know we are far from that. In your opening, you said we have under 2% of the high seas protected now. This treaty, if done well, can take us to 30%, which is quite good, right? We are moving mm-hmm. towards that. If we close the high seas, to sweet, then the information requirements will be low, right? Mm-hmm. You see a boat fishing there, you know it's fishing illegally. But I know this is just, at the moment, it's a dream, right? Now, to your question, in the agreement, there is a lot on transparency. They have mechanisms for countries to report what happens and also countries to to support each other. The developing world is part of it, so there is a mechanism. They have a fund to support developing countries to understand their ocean and how to relate with it and the high seas. So all of this, I think, will help us get more information, more transparency, and and, uh, we just keep pushing forward and improving the situation. And I think we are getting on the right path. Thank you very much for your insights, Professor. We've been speaking with Professor Rashid Sumaila, who is Director of the Fisheries Economics Research Unit at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.